You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, August 28th, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. How are you doing, Yo, Evan? I'm fine. We seem to be short one. Yeah, Rebecca's on her way to Dragon Con, so she cannot ah. join us for this week's show. But I'm sure she's going to have a good time down there. We had to miss it. We were too busy doing other skeptical activities this year. Although I did uh, have a pretty exciting weekend. Mm -hmm. Uh, My wife and I, usually one weekend a summer, we go to Tanglewood, which is the summer home of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And this year we got tickets to their most popular event, which is movie night. Oh, Uh man. And? And it was conducted. 2001. It was conducted by... John Williams. Uh, oh, 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 no shit. Oh, What's he ever oh, done? Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> Steve. It was so, epic. So the question is, how much of the Star Wars music did he play? All right. So, I mean, it was not just his music. It was, well, who is he? You know, let our listeners know. John so. Williams is the uh, the uh, the guy who wrote, wrote the score, wrote for like every huge sci-fi epic you could think of, pretty much. Star Wars, Jaws, E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark, ton of other ones. You, you, you know his music extremely well. I mean, think of it. Th- this guy sat down and wrote ba 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 right? So, I mean, he played, you know, he did, and there was another conductor there as well, but he, you know, did, um, they did, like, a lot of different movies, like the, the Pink Panther was a lot of fun, and they, they, they did, like, the last 15 minutes of Casablanca and basically played the music live. Oh, my God. Wow. It's wow. my favorite wow. movie, and then by the way. The, the end was a medley of all John Williams' song, of the ones that I mentioned, you know, Jaws, Star Wars, uh. E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Then he comes out for an encore. And the, and they play the full Imperial Death March, <laughs> <laughs> and it was the be, it was the best piece of the night. It was a total nerdgasm. It yeah. was awesome. <laughs> I mean, did you Shit. at one point did you just like did you just have a smile on your face? Were you looking over at? At Jocelyn, like, oh, oh yeah. my God, <laughs> I would have lost my mind. It's such an experience. You know, it's definitely like a bucket list kind of thing. All right, I saw John Williams conducting the Imperial Death March. Done. Got that Yeah, one. he's no spring chicken either. No, you know? no. He is doing the music for the next uh, Star Wars movies, though. He did say that he's doing that. Steve, what's it like to be in the room with the orchestra? I mean, can you feel the music? Can yeah, you- yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, listening to live music is always a much more intense emotional experience than recorded music. And because, you know, usually when you're listening to music, you're doing something else at the same time. But now you're just doing nothing but sitting there listening to the music. You're, you can see all the instruments. Obviously, the, the sound can't get better than, you know, a live symphony orchestra. And, you know, it just overwhelms you. You know, it has a different – the music comes alive in a way that it just doesn't when you're listening to the recording. And, you know, just, and the fact that it was being conducted by John Williams is just a nice touch. So very nice, very enjoyable experience. 
Sorry you guys couldn't be there. <laughs> yeah, thanks for inviting <laughs> Yeah, yeah, thanks for asking us to go. Hey, we barely got tickets. This thing sells out so fast every year. The movie night's the most popular event that they hold. Today's show is brought to you by Hulu Plus. With Hulu Plus, you get total control to watch thousands of shows wherever and whenever you want. SGU listeners can get an extended two-week trial of Hulu Plus by going to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU. All right. Well, let's move on with the show. Evan, you're going to step in for Rebecca and do This Day in Skepticism. Yep. So you're listening to the show on August 31st, and it was August 31st in 1909. German scientist Paul Elrich began the first chemotherapy, which is a term he actually coined. Uh, sometime before he had given his assistant by the name of Sahachiro Hata, he gave him two organic arsenic compounds to test as a treatment for syphilis, which is caused by the bacteria Treponema pallidium. Treponema pallidium cannot be cultured in the lab, and it can't be investigated using conventional lab techniques. But his assistant became the first to discover how to infect rabbits so that they could produce syphilis. And after many careful experiments, Hata reported success with what was known as Preparation 606, the 606th chemical devised by Elric's team. And on August 31st, 1909, Elric watched Hata inject 606 into a rabbit with, syph with syphilitic ulcers. And the next day, uh, no trace of the bacteria could be found, and the ulcers had healed within a month. Thus, Syphilis was the first disease caused by a microorganism to be cured with a specific drug. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I mean, obviously the, the, the particular drug that he came up with didn't have a lot of longevity. It was replaced by penicillin. But the concept that you could, you know, through repeated screening and research, discover a specific chemical that would be particularly useful against one particular disease that's a pretty potent concept that he came up with. You know, that basically is the, the underlying basis of all like future pharmaco pharmacology research. Yeah, and who better than Edward G. Robinson to play the title role in the movie? <laughs> I got your magic bullet right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Evan. Jay, um, you're going to tell us about energized water. It's going to apparently save the world from everything. Yeah, this is a doozy, guys. Prepare yourselves. So have you heard of this new thing that's even better than Miley Cyrus going apeshit at the VMAs? Cyrus. Was she twerking? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> twerking. <laughs> Did you guys see that? Was that insane? Oh, oh I laughed my ass off. Oh, anyway, the, the, this <laughs> what's, what's insane is that twerking is a thing. This, I think we, we I definitely need to make an SGU twerking video. Um, Starring oh, who exactly? Yeah, we'll, we'll work out the details <laughs> later. So... <laughs> Radio wave energized water is better than twerking, and I'm about to prove it to you. All right. Uh, this technique of treating water with radio waves uh, is being regurgitated by Professor Austin Darag and Dr. J.J. Leahy of Limerick University's Department of Chemistry and Environmental Science. It's called uh, V-Aqua, which means life water. So they really were trying hard to come up with a cool name for it. And here's what treating <laughs> the water with radio waves does. It's inexpensive water treatment. It massively increases the output of vegetable and fruits by up to 30%. It, it's largely disease resistant, uh, meaning that once, you know, once things are grown with the water, they are largely de disease resistant. They make, uh, GM obsolete. How about that one? Good. Yeah. Right. Uh, if you, 
if you grow plants with this, it addresses the whole global warming fear that there is too much carbon dioxide in the air by simply converting excess CO2 into edible plant mass. Mm. And it uses nothing but natural elements of sunlight, water, carbon dioxide in the air, and the minerals in the soil. Okay, so at this point, I, a consumer of information on the web, decide to go to the website for this product after reading a lot of this stuff in the article that that we're covering. So I got a good look at the V-Aqua device. And there are different versions of the product depending on the scale of the water you need to treat, of course. So they, they you know, if you could get one that you could, you know, treat an incredible amount of water with and then you can all the way down to like this little handheld one. So I was looking at the handheld walkie-talkie style one. Now get this, it has an antenna and you stick that antenna in a bucket of water to treat the water with radio waves. Okay. Now check this out. This is from uh this is from the website. The V Aqua technology uses a series of special micro and mega radio waves with frequencies up to about 27 megahertz. And this way introduces into the water electromagnetic encoded energy, totally safe for the environment, which allows to improve the performance of organisms and the uptake by their nutrient contained therein. Stimulates photosynthesis by converting the essential nutrients into energy. V-Aqua also modifies the configuration of hydrogen and oxygen in water, influencing its micro-fundamental structures, increasing the availability of oxides and peroxides and superoxides. It's a freaking miracle. If the person who wrote the original article (laughs) read this page on the V-Aqua website and decided to still write the article, please stop writing from this day forward. Your license is now revoked by the SGU. All right, Jay, Jay, the opening paragraph to the news report, this is on The Independent, which is, I think, an Irish newspaper. So there's a little Mm -hmm. bit of, you know, Irish patriotism here. But they write, this is the opening paragraph, a groundbreaking, all caps, new Irish technology, Mm -hmm. which could be the greatest breakthrough in agriculture since the plow, is set to change the face of modern farming forever. Well, that's a unbiased. Yeah, not much uh, hyperbole there, right? right? Yeah, it's very scientific. The website must be loaded with published, peer-reviewed studies demonstrating all of the claims that they're making, right, Jay? Yeah. Indeed, yes, Steve. Let me continue. Professor Austin Dura says, Viaqua makes water wetter and introduces as- at- atmospheric nitrogen. Wetter. As opposed to that dry water. Did I mention that there is a testimonial page on their website? You didn't really have to, but it's good to hear. Oh, wait, Steve. (laughs) There's more. Chickens and sheep fed the energized water turned into giant... Goblins. Chickens and sheep. (laughs) Giant Giant? chickens and sheep. Yes. Giant, like eight times the size? And I'm not... That word is not mine. I plucked that right out of the article. Giants. Yeah, these water scams are are old. And what's interesting is this guy, the V-Aqua, hits... A lot of the various scams. There's, there's a number of different, I mean, chemists apparently love to debunk these water claims and there's some good websites out there doing that. There's, there are various kinds of water scams. Uh, there's what I found one website, chem1.com that has a gallery of water related pseudoscience where he breaks up into categories. There's got to be over a hundred different specific water based scams here. And, and he breaks them up into different, different types. So there's, what, there's like hyper oxygenated water is one. Structured water is another where, so that you're altering the, the molecular structure of the water and energized water. Those are like the big three. And this V aqua hits all three of them. You got the super oxygenated, <laughs> structured, energized water, you know. Um, it's all 100% total pseudoscientific 
bunk. There is just nothing to it at all. Have you tried it, Steve? You can't you change the structure of water. You can't energize it or anything. You know, they, all the stuff that they're saying, you know, you at very, at the, at best, you would make extremely transient changes to the water, but it would immediately go away. You know, if you like create hydrogen ions in the water, guess what? They react and they just it goes right back to just being water. You know, if you, Acidify or alkalize it or whatever you do to it, just guess what? Acids and bases just combine right back together and form water. Yep. You have to question whether or not the researchers are legitimate or if they're scam artists. And my first impression was that, you know, there's just so many obvious red flags, but it wasn't clear to me. But now after Jay's gone through the details, I mean, gigantic cows and chickens, I mean, you don't make a mistake like that. It seems like it, but you know, the thing is, you never really know, but at, at the same time, it doesn't really matter. At some point, right, right. The, the distinction becomes irrelevant. Uh, I, I do have to comment on one thing that they said here about global warming by simply converting excess CO2 into edible plant mass. That will have exactly zero effect on global warming or on CO2 in the atmosphere because if you're making it into edible plants, guess what? Guess what? Those plants are yeah. going to get eaten and They're converted back, back into CO2. There. Right. Hey, that's Steve, you, what are you trying to do here? You would have to bury those plants under the ground in order to sequester <laughs> CO2. <laughs> no. uh, you yeah, it's ridiculous. And um, this director of the National Botanical Gardens, um, Harold Lawler. So this is another red flag of pseudoscience is trying to surround yourself with the trappings of apparent legitimacy. Yeah, he, they, they got you know, these, some botanical gardens to sign off on this. doesn't mean they're scientists. They have any idea what's going on. It doesn't mean their endorsement means the slightest thing, but they're promoting it as if this is somehow means that they're legitimate. I looked up Professor Austin Darrow. He's a chemist. He's published some studies. He, I couldn't find a single peer-reviewed study that he published on this water to support any of the claims that he's making. If, there's something very alluring, though, about water pseudoscience. You know, the notion that water could be miraculous like this, could have these energized properties and like super water. I think psychologically, you know, water, it is obviously essential for life. It, it's the it's the very essence of purity and life, you know, water. And so the notion of you super seventy percent water, yes, yeah, super Novella. energized water. It just has, I think, this psychological appeal. That's I think that's probably why there are so many thousands of different water snake oil out there. Sure, sure, but, we can all relate to it. Seventy percent of us can. Yeah, exactly. I also noticed that um, the uh, quantum jumping website endorses energized water. Ooh. So there you go. Wow, quantum, ju- quantum How long jumping. How has it been since we talked about that? Yeah, what a cool, what a we cool gotta go back to two thousand seven or something. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Uh, the next bit of pseudoscience we're going to talk about on the show this week is probiotics for mental health. Now, talk um, about hyperbole and bad science reporting. This article, so there's, you know, often I like to talk about two aspects of science reporting like this, the reporting itself and then the actual claims that are being made. So this was an article that uh, came to my attention. Many readers sent this to me um, asking what I thought, and I did write about it on Neurologica. The Future of Psychiatry May Be Inside Your Stomach by Carrie Arnold. The article follows a very typical um, journalistic algorithm, you know, where she starts with a, a sick patient that nobody could figure out how to treat them or what they have. The family is desperate. And then they seek out this maverick doc- doctor with a new unusual 
treatment idea, the patient has a miraculous response and eventually is cured. Then they they back that up with reporting preliminary cherry-picked research, taking the conclusions way beyond the data, totally out of context. Then, you know, there's maybe some optional token skepticism, but then they immediately take that away by contradicting it and finishing with a nice emotional flourish. So that's that was the format that she followed. And, you know, I don't mind journalists following a format that and that and I don't mind taking stories, you know, dry stories and, and adding some human interest or some personal appeal or whatever. But you got to do it right. You got to tell the correct story. The problem here is that the, the invariably, you know, with very few rare exceptions, this is the story they're telling. The sick, desperate patient who gets cured by the maverick doctor with his groundbreaking ideas. Um, and then, you know, and the sort of breaking away of skepticism before this onslaught of evidence. And it's almost never, it reflects reality. So the notion here is that the, the particular constitution of bacteria that colonize your GI system can affect your emotions, your mood, your, your mental health. The evidence that's cited to support this notion, nothing that comes even close to establishing that taking probiotics of any particular kind could actually have an effect on your mental health. It's mainly based upon rodent data where, you know, animal behavior is altered by often dramatic interventions like wiping out the gut bacteria and then doing a fecal transplant to reconstitute it with a completely different biome. Not the same thing as eating some activated yogurt. Yogurt, activate. The strain of plausibility here <laughs> uh, is that the bacteria in your GI system probably do have some relationship to the degree of inflammation in your body. And inflammation can cause the release of corticosteroids, can increase your stress levels, your other hormone levels. And so, sure, you know, there is a neuroendocrine system, you know, physiolog, you know, it's like being in a bad mood when you have a tummy ache, you know, for example, or, Perhaps beyond that, you have stress hormones from inflammation and it's increasing your stress levels and your anxiety levels. So there could be a plausible cause and effect with a very basic mechanism like like stress levels. But that's about it. The notion that there's going to be like your brain's going to be rewired and it's going to function differently because of the, the bacteria in your gut. There's really no plausible mechanism for that. And there is no evidence from which you could extrapolate to make those kinds of claims. But that's actually the, the kind of thing that they're suggesting in this article, that like this patient's obsessive compulsive disorder was cured by lactobacillus, you know, or whatever, I don't know, whatever back, probiotic bacteria she was given. That's really absurd. The notion that you can alter your your gut biome with with probiotics is also pretty shaky. You know, the, the bacteria in your gut exist in an ecosystem, you know, and it's hard, it's hard to break into that ecosystem. They, you know, people's intestinal flora tend to settle on these stable ecosystems. In fact, there was a study, I think we mentioned it on the show from a couple of years ago, where they found that there's like these four basic ecosystems that most people have, like one of these four assortments of different bacteria in their GI system. And you can't change that just by by any probiotic product. You know, even if you're taking ones that are selected to be acid resistant and to survive the trip through the stomach, you know, how many of them actually get into your your gut and and reproduce? They're just not going to establish themselves. Now, that's the whole, you know, one of the whole points of having a, a flourishing 
uh, bacterial ecosystem in your gut is that it crowds out any new bacteria that's trying to get in because you know they're they're likely to be harmful or cause problems but that the same is true of new bacteria as well really the only uh, evidence for any beneficial effect that's really you know significant and repeatable that i've seen is for situations in which the gut bacteria have been substantially reduced by antibiotics or whatever and then you're trying to reconstitute that and then even then you can't reconstitute the GI system with probiotics. Maybe you might reduce symptoms by temporarily f- flooding the system with some probiotics while your GI flora uh, rebounds. Treatments that works much better are fecal transplants from your family because you, you tend to share the same bacterial you know, flora with your family. It sounds like they're, they still haven't either figured it out or it may not be doing anything at all. I think that the potential here is there. I think as a way of of tweaking health or affecting health, altering gut bacteria is a very interesting approach. But we are it's still in its infancy and we still need to learn a lot more about what different types of of bacteria in the gut what effect they have on various aspects of health and the technology of how to change it, how to change somebody's you know, ecosystem of bacteria. Um, we're nowhere near really being able to have like a net positive effect on health by altering the intestinal flora. And I think that the existing probiotic products out there basically don't do anything. You know, maybe, maybe if you take a, the highest dose ones early on in a diarrhea, it may be symptomatically maybe a little helpful, but the data there is even a little wishy-washy. So uh, I think that we're just not there yet. You know, we need to we need to figure out how to utilize this concept. Okay, now we're actually working our way down the scale of pseudoscience with this next item, Evan. Uh, we're gonna we've talked about iridology in the past, but there's a case of a patient relying upon iridology from New Zealand that we heard about recently. Yep. That's right, folks. Pseudoscience can kill. Yvonne Maine, a woman from New Zealand, died of a tumor on her head because she refused to be treated by mainstream doctors. What started as a small cyst, which if treated early enough, according to the reports, could have been cured. But Maine delayed treatment until the cyst had grown into a large cancer eating through her skull. Oh, which oh, I have no, never God. heard of before. Oh, yeah. That's that's oh, nothing new. Gosh. That's nothing. <laughs> I, I guess I avoid such horrors, either deliberately or whatever. But And by the time her daughters were finally able to drag Miss Maine to the doctors, to real doctors, it was too late, and she died. This took place back in 2010. So what did happen here? And why did she delay, and what was she doing all this time? Well, according to testimony... Maine had feared going to the hospital because of the possibility of being recommended certain treatments such as radiation and chemotherapy, which are certainly, you know, not attractive uh, procedures to have to go through. But um, unfortunately, these this is what we have right now with, uh, with what we know of medicine and technology. And Maine was seeking treatment from an iridologist. Her name was Ruth Nelson. She, Maine sought the services of a natural healer, natural healer and found it in Nelson, who is a self-practicing iridologist. And I found this uh, on the web somewhere at a certain uh, 
blog post that, that, that I read frequently called Neurologica, mm-hmm. when, which is described that iridology is the absurd practice of diagnosing problems and prescribing treatments based upon the flecks of color in the iris. It is a completely fabricated notion without the slightest bit of biological plausibility or evidence that is based in reality. A perfect definition, if you ask me. Now, the reason this story was in the news again this week, you know, that took place, she died back in 2010, but it's in the news this week because New Zealand's Human Rights Review Tribunal, which is a special review board of the Ministry of Justice in New Zealand, heard the testimony of Maine's two daughters the other day. And one of the daughters who was present for most of the appointments between her mother and Nelson claims that Nelson was asked to promise, asked the patient, to promise not to see any doctors for her condition. The daughter also claims that the iridologist would use scare tactics, such as telling her mother that she would catch bugs if she went to the hospital. And Nelson, it's claimed that Nelson said if she could rid Maine of the infect, that she could rid Maine of the infection within three weeks and heal her entirely in three months, if she promised not to see a doctor. Now, by the time Maine actually saw the surgeons about the festering wound on her head, uh, the lesion was cancerous and had grown so big her brain was exposed. Oh no! So, I don't know. It turned into science fiction for me at this point. It almost seemed. I don't, how do you? How do you exist with your brain being exposed? I don't even uh, walking around and stuff. The iridologist Nelson is under investigation in a case brought by the Office of the Health and Disability Commissioner that her treatment of her client breached the Code of Health and Disability Services consumer rights. Uh, in failing as a healthcare provider to give Maine proper care. And that's where we are as of today. This is a very dramatic story, of course, but you know, as I pointed out when I wrote about it, it, it doesn't take a practitioner of nonsense to say, do not go to see a regular physician in order to them, for them to be guilty, in my opinion, of, of neglect and malpractice for encouraging a patient to not seek proper treatment, even just by offering an alternative, you are probably enabling someone's denial, their fears of seeking proper medical care. I think nothing short of directly and vociferously encouraging, recommending, and then eventually insisting that somebody seek proper medical care is proper. If you are putting yourself forward as a healthcare practitioner, you can't preside over a patient and who really needs serious medical intervention and not insist that they get it, you know? So she's, she's claiming the, the iridologist that she never told her not to see a real physician. I don't think it matters. Of course, if she did, I mean, in terms of her, her being partly responsible for the patient's death. But of course, if she, you know, to the, the extent that she did do that instill fear of, mainstream medicine and instill bizarre notions of health and disease, offer an alternative that distracted and allured her away from mainstream medicine. And and then the ultimate, which is specifically telling her not to seek real medicine. Of course, you know, that all, all those different levels increase her culpability. But I wouldn't fall into the false dichotomy of anything short of telling a patient not to see a real doctor is okay. I think it's all degrees of malfeasance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, especially when the alternative you're, you're offering is pure, complete nonsense. And talking about nonsense, I mean, one of the treatments was tapping on her forehead while, uh, you know, saying positive affirmations. Like, whoa. Yeah. And that's, that's what you got. That's your, that's, that's your best shot right there. That's faith healing. So you're playing on people's fears. Definitely the emotional components are very strong here. 
And from how it's described by the daughters, their mother saw this iridologist more as a shaman, a holy sort of figure in which she had the power, essentially, to heal her specific condition without having to go through some nasty things like like radiation. So her... She was so emotionally invested in having yeah. to have this happen that she had to see it through to the very end. But that's the guru effect, what right? Happened. That's what all gurus want. They want to be seen as if they have magical, mystical powers, whether it's special knowledge or special insight or some kind of literally magical power that gives them that gives them power, that gives them something to market, you know, to the gullible, to the desperate. So that's that's the persona. That's what they want. So, Bob, tell me. I mean, we've talked about this before, but how interested are you in living forever? <laughs> that's, I'm not interested in impossibilities. And that's funny. That, that's one of the things. So many of these articles talk about immortality, which is, which is such a, uh, a straw man. This new pupil actually had had very little to do with, uh, you know, radically extended lifespans. This was just uh, talking about just a, a modest increase. And so let me get into it. Recently, uh there's been in the news a lot about the, a pupil of talking about focusing on life extension. So the big takeaway that everybody's reporting is that given the option to live to 120, a, a whopping 56% said they would not want to. 56, more than half of the people said they wouldn't want to live to 120. And uh, at first I was think, I was thinking, what? How is that? Why would nobody be interested in that or so few? Let's go through some of the details here and, and just try to see, you know, are 50%, 56% of Americans as crazy as they seem. And uh, it actually kind of makes a little bit of sense when you when you dig into it a bit. So earlier this year, Pew Research did a telephone survey of about 2,000 adults, and they asked a lot of questions and, seem, and seemingly unending supply of questions that, that I was going through. But the, the one I mentioned went something like this. If you could undergo a medical treatment that would slow the aging process and live to 120, would you do it? And like I said, 56% said no. And 38% said yes, and I guess if 6% weren't too sure uh, what they would do. Why did they do this? Were that one, that there would be too much of a strain on resources, and only the wealthy uh, would have access to the treatment. Now, the second one, I, I don't really don't even understand that one at all, because the premise of this whole question was that you would receive the treatment, right? I mean, only the wealthy, so therefore, I w- you know, I won't avail myself of it if it's uh, if it's offered to me. What? Okay. So, Bob, the, the so, bulk uh, of them... Well, that was the reasoning for the bulk of them? Yeah, so those were the top reasons. The, the resource one, though, I could kind of see where they were coming, you know, with that. You know, but we're really only talking about a few decades longer, really. I mean, you know, it's not that much longer. 120, people are living 80, 90, 100, you know, so much more. I think there's over 400,000 uh, centenarians alive right but now. What are, the, what are the quality of those years? I think that's the crux of the question. Well, that's just it. And I think, I think that's one of the reasons. That's kind of like the reasons below the surface uh, that these people kind of maybe emotionally feel and they just didn't verbalize. Uh, for example, uh, the World Health Organization every year does an assessment of, uh, of not just lifespan, but healthy lifespan, healthy life years, they call it. So they basically interview people trying to find out how long people live before their lives are compromised by disability or illness. So, for example, um, a European male, say, has a life expectancy of 77, but only 61.4 of those years are free of activity limitation. 120 years could mean decades of some some level of limitation, whether it's you know, minimal or moderate or, or severe. So the older you are, the less likely you want to live, that people wanted to live to 120. 
So that might sound surprising, but think about it. You know, the older you are, the more likely you are to have physical or mental limitations, and the more likely you are to know lots of people that are older, even just a little bit older than you, that are more debilitated than you. Well, all right. First of all, they they asked, they said that that there that would they partake in a medical procedure that would slow down the aging process, which would mean that you would get more active years. Well, yeah, so more, 100 more, would be the right. would be 80. Something you'd get like more that. active years, but also more inactive years. Everything right. would be extended. A- exactly. But the thing is, though, uh, you know, I'd say that advances like this, though, do not happen in a vacuum. You know, yeah. depending on your depending on your age, you could be a half century or more away from from being 120. So even if advances happen at the same rate they're happening now, which I think they're they're just going to accelerate. You know, your debilitated years could be very compressed. Uh, by the time you get to 90, 100, 110, you know, the goal after, after all of many medical advances is not to make, it's not just to make you live longer, but it's to improve your quality of life. Already seeing a dramatic change in the quality of, of people's bodies and everything as they get older. Now, like people in their forties today actually look like they're in a, a decade or more younger. Some of them, sure. Yeah. People that take care of themselves, that don't drink, that don't smoke. That are exercising and, you know, maybe, of course, mixed in a little bit that genetically that they, they might be, have a, um, you know, be on the, the more healthy side. That absolutely, I wouldn't want to be completely debilitated uh, physically or mentally or both and, you know, try to get another 20 years out of that because it's, is it really you at that point, especially the mental part? Yeah, the mental part's the killer. Uh, the physical yes. part would suck, but, you know, if you leave it, if you lead a largely intellectual life, I would be happy to be alive. It would suck to be physically debilitated, but the intellectual life would be sufficient. And think about all the future tech you're going to see. Yep. So exactly. <laughs> I want to see the future, you know. So I, I would, I would put up with the physical disability as long as my mind was still there. Of yeah. course, there's, there's, there's lack of ability to do stuff. And then there's like physical pain. Yeah. That's a different, and I, I get that like as well. Fear, yeah. Fear like living in pain or having, like major quality of life uh, diminishing problems. So I, I can understand fear of that. It, it all depends on the probable quality of life that we're talking about. Don't know when, but it, the time will come when, when we will be seeing some real advances and people will be, you know, approached and saying, hey, I mean, if you go through with this treatment, you'll get an extra three, four, five decades of, of quality life. Do you, do you want it? And everybody's going to say yes. Once they see the evidence with their eyes, and they actually see the effect. I think it's going to be a no-brainer, and that's the key. I think is to show that this is this will be healthy, active life that they're extending, and not just you know decrepitude. Yeah, so you're not going to be living as the crypt keeper. <laughs> well, well, that, that wouldn't, wouldn't be, be so maybe, bad either. In the last few years, that could be kick-ass, Steve. <laughs> yes. Yeah, <laughs> with those awful puns and stuff. Oh my god. <laughs> So, Evan, it's time to get us caught up on Who's That Noisy? Yep, I'm going to play for you last week's Noisy, and without uh, further delay, we'll jump right into it. Here we go. A number of these cases, uh, when they're floated through the wall of their home, through the window, through the door, again, this uh, mm-hmm. so many of the details of these experiences make no sense in our kind of, what, the Newtonian, Cartesian, Western, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. notions of reality, and yet... Yeah, what do you think of our Western notions of reality? Is that not mm-hmm. co- code speak for for something <laughs> for something else, right? For new age bullshit. Yeah, kind of, 
kind of lends, it, lends itself to that, uh, don't you think so? Rhymes with sewage. None other than John Edward Mack, M.D., an American psychiatrist, writer, and professor at Harvard Medical School. He was a Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer and leading authority on the spiritual or transformational effects of alleged alien abduction experiences. He basically was a psychiatrist who fell for the delusions of his own patients. Broke rule number one. <laughs> but other than that, he's Pulitzer Prize-winning, and he's an MD, <laughs> and and uh, he wrote his book uh, 19, in 1994 called Abduction, and um, it's, yeah, stirred up some controversy. Yeah, to say the least. I had put a little hint on the uh, message boards for those of you who went there to uh, post your response in that uh, the in one thing he had in uh, common with Carl Sagan is that they were both uh, anti-nuclear activists, you know, very, very strong ones. And in fact, they uh, worked together on a. On, on a few petitions to, uh, you know, to cut down on nuclear arms. But that's it. That's, <laughs> believe that, that's kind of where it really ended as far as the, uh, the link there. Uh, Sagan, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Sagan did not, uh, buy into any of, uh, what Mac had to say, uh, about alien abductions, of course. So several correct guesses this week, but, uh, there can be only one winner, of course. So, Ashley Myers, congratulations. You guessed correctly and your name was drawn and you are this week's winner. You are in the final drawing at the end of the year. And now for this week, I, I found this, uh, on YouTube just today and uh, I felt it was too good to pass up. So, what, let me know what you think about this. One second. Is that Miley Cyrus? That was the same clip you played three times. I did, yes. I repeated it three times uh, because that was the best quality of the entirety of the clip. And the rest of it was kind of there were people talking over it and too much other interference. So I just used the same clip three times in a row. And what is making that noise? That's this week's Who's That Noisy? So our email address for Who's That Noisy submissions is WTN at theskepticsguide.org or... As I alluded to earlier, you can go to our forums, sguforums.com, and place your answer there. Give it your best guess. Good luck, everyone. All right. Thank you, Evan. So let's go on with that. Uh, our question this week, this comes from Soren Ragsdale from the UK. That's a cool name, Soren yeah, Ragsdale. Yeah, it's, I like it. It's, it's like the Is kind of real? name Isaac Asimov would make up for one of his science I was fiction thinking, Yeah, I was yeah. thinking it's a villain in Sherlock Holmes novel or something like yeah. that. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, Soren Ragsdale. <laughs> exactly. I'll get you, you bastard. <laughs> you rogue. <laughs> All right. He writes, this week I noticed one of my anarcho-hippie friends question authority buttons. I appreciate the skeptical sentiment. Obviously, we should question whether Saddam Hussein has WMDs or whether God really exists, but some authorities are authoritative. We shouldn't question the medical establishment on links between HIV and AIDS or the scientific establishment on the reality of anthropogenic global warming. Is there an SGU version of question authority that balances the necessity of open inquiry with the recognition of legitimate authorities? Is it short enough to print on a bumper sticker? So this is a good question. We get this all the time, this uh, delicate balance between questioning authority while respecting authoritative sources. And global warming always seems to be the example that comes up when we're talking about this issue. So but so Bob or Jay or Evan, how would you put that onto a bumper sticker? 
Question um, question everything politely. Respect authority if they can back it up with evidence. <laughs> Is that like a trust but verify? <laughs> yeah, yes. I, was, I was going. Yeah, to I like that. Verify. That's good, Steve. Trust but verify. Uh, where have I heard that? that works. You have to. Ronald you Reagan. just have to build your internal baloney detector up to the point where it's always on, it's running smoothly, and you don't get in its way. That that's too long for a bumper sticker, James. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm giving you the thing that we will condense down into a bumper sticker. How about authority by committee or something like that, right? Because it's a lone authority, okay, you know, there's some questions there. But, it, you know, when you have the authority of several and lots of people, experts in a particular field, I think that's like a body of authority that you can uh, put some, put some uh, comfort in that they know what they're doing, what they're saying, and how they're going about their business. Yeah, definitely the uh, the authority of a consensus of expert opinion is more reliable than a single individual. No really one person could be a definitive authority. You know, science works by a consensus of the community. Uh, again, there's a lot of depth and nuance to this that's hard to boil down to a bumper sticker. I also think that, you know, the question of authority thing, which is certainly part of this skeptical sentiment, is misinterpreted often as being anti-authority mm-hmm. or being contrarian. I think people who are contrarian think that they're being skeptical when they're not. They're rejecting authority just for the sake of rejecting authority yeah. rather than taking things as it comes. Some authority is re- is reasonable and reliable and should be deferred to unless you have a very good reason not to, whereas other claims to authority should be questioned more out of hand because they they don't rise above the threshold of legitimacy. How about question authority but accept reality? There we go. Yeah, it's not really capturing the limit though. They like the the balance. How about question everything discern the truth? It's uh, too non-specific. How about I mean so these are all fine, you know, fine aphorisms, they're just not capturing the essence of what he's talking about here. Yeah, you know, we need something like uh keep an open mind but not so open that your brains fall out, right? It's question authority <laughs> uh, or like respect authority but not absolutely or something like that. You know, you have to have the proper attitude towards authority but set skeptical limits on it. Question everything. Respect my authority. Respect my authority. <laughs> All right. You think we have to percolate this one a little bit more? Maybe we need to crowdsource this with our listeners? Maybe. That's not a bad we'll idea. have some good ideas. I'm or how, sure. about, how about question authority but less so if it's a consensus? <laughs> that's, well, that's pithy. There, there's some, I don't know, maybe there's some magic phrase that we have to hit upon that would really crystallize it. All right, Soren, we will think about it some more and we'll, we'll ask our very astute listeners to make some suggestions. Maybe we'll pick the best one next week. All right. Hey guys, let's take a quick break to talk about this week's sponsor, Hulu Plus. I must admit it is great for the entire family. Rachel, my daughter and I, Love watching shows about food and restaurants. We've been watching Restaurant Impossible and Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives, two of our favorite food shows. We love watching it on Hulu+. Plus. One of my lifelong favorite shows is Nova. I just, it just gives me the warm fuzzies because I've been watching it for decades. Nostalgic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's just great content, just great science content. There are nine seasons and 52 episodes of Nova on Hulu Plus that you can get access to anytime oh, you want. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. cool. Lately, I've been uh, watching uh, Third Rock from the Sun, which is a, such a hilarious show. John Lithgow is yeah, he's an amazing comedian. My God. Bob, is that, is that holding up or what? 
Yeah, it it really is. And uh, I've also uh, I saw Firefly on there, so I'm catching Ooh. up on that on that because uh, I didn't because yeah. I missed it. Actually, episodes I missed. Wait till you see the second me. season of that. Yeah, problem. I can't wait for the second. Oh man, <laughs> don't even joke around. <laughs> so I'm going to recommend this week Spinal Tap. If you haven't seen it, Ooh, watch it. I haven't and seen it. I've never seen this it. Dude. Is Spinal Tap. That movie goes up to eleven. That movie is epic. <laughs> Guys, Hulu Plus is seven ninety nine a month. And because you're listening to our podcast, that you're going to get an extended trial period of two weeks. So go to www.huluplus.com forward slash SGU, and you could support the SGU while creating your account, and we really appreciate your support. Yeah, and don't forget, you could you could watch Hulu Plus on pretty much any device right off your TV, on a gaming console, your computer, a portable device, an iPad. Very versatile. Uh, and as Jay said, you get a two-week free trial, seven ninety-nine a month after that, and you get access to all of these great shows. You can also get to Hulu Plus right off of our website. Just click the link that we have there for you. Or from anywhere, just HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU. All right, guys. Thank you. Let's get back to our show. We are sitting here at TAM 2013 with Kara Santamaria. And Kara, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Thanks for having me. And Kara, you are a science communicator, a writer, producer, um, journalist. Uh, you've been on many different shows. Right now, you're, you're co-hosting Hacking the Planet with John Rennie. Yep. He's here yeah. at the conference with us as well. So how did you get into promoting science? Yeah, you know, it was a weird kind of twist and turn for me. I think it really came out of my background's not journalism. My background is science. So, what specifically, I, if I might ask? So, my undergraduate degree is in psychology, and mm-hmm. I was a philosophy minor. And then my master's degree is in neurobiology. I started a PhD in clinical neuropsychology, but I actually kind of fell in love with the boy, dropped out, moved to the West Coast, and really that's when I first started getting involved in science communication. Because looking back at my whole time in graduate school, you know, anybody who's listening who is, you know, struggling through graduate school right now knows that there are kind of three things that you're committed to in school. You need to do your research in the lab. You need to um, take your courses. And then a lot of people also teach for money. And, um, and that's really why they do it for money. I found myself actually kind of not wanting to be in the lab, but really enjoying being in the classroom. And so for me, I think it was a pretty easy um, transition into communicating science for kind of a larger audience because it's sort of the same thing as teaching just and and kind of the way that I did it it really is the same thing as teaching yeah I agree I mean that's kind of like I'm, I'm a teacher as well and this this to me is all just an extension of teaching yeah yeah, yeah. just a little more casually yeah and with more f-bombs is there any particular <laughs> fields of science you, you gravitate towards you like communicating besides Besides neuroscience. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I do love the behavior stuff because it's really interesting and there's so much woo and like pseudoscience. So it's really fun to kind of get into the weeds of it. Um, but for me, I think I'm also more and more really enjoying communicating physics, even though I'm not particularly good at it because I get to learn so much along the way. I didn't really study physics in school at all. I, I took a stellar astronomy class when I was like a sophomore in college. But outside of that, it's not my background. And so when I get to interview physicists and ask them interesting questions, yeah. I feel like I'm learning along with the audience. Yeah, I can relate to that. Definitely. Yeah. That's pretty much where I was. I took a, astronomy and the physics of light and color in, in college and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And uh, But that's that's real, the only formal training I've had. Everything else is just what I've read. And yeah. yeah, the oh, SGU yeah. Is, is a classroom for me as well, like our mm-hmm. podcast, because we, we're doing the same thing. We're interviewing a lot of different people. We do a ton of research for our news items every week, and we get a lot of feedback from our listeners too. You know, An expert will write and say, hey, yeah, you guys 
maybe made a couple of minor yeah. mistakes or whatever. And it's just this big learning process for us. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, I, I love that too. I loved it when I was working with Huffington Post and I was working as their science correspondent. I could interview scientists or sometimes I would do these kind of explainer stories on my own where I did all of my own research and then I scripted out the whole thing and we just kind of put up animations or images and, and I would talk. And so it was always fun to get that feedback from individual scientists who were like, hey, I worked on that project. Maybe, you know, maybe we can do an interview or, hey, you know, this part was a little off and this is really what it meant. And it, there are certain stories that I think just generally speaking, the media will pick up because they have a flashy topic or whatever. And and I remember once going on Attack of the Show and um, Horatio Sands was the guest host and he asked me about this kind of, are we all living in a simulation story that was really big coming out of Washington and everybody kept likening it onto the Matrix. Are we living in the Matrix? Are we living in the Matrix? And I tried to kind of avoid that language and I went through and talked about, I, I mean, honestly, I read the paper like 20 minutes before I went on air. I didn't really understand it. And that's what I told them. I was like, I don't really get it, but it seems like what they actually are doing is simulating space time at the femtometer scale. And they're saying, if we could do that, who's to say somebody couldn't be simulating us? And I actually got an email from the author of the study. Oh, awesome. yeah. And he was like, I'm so glad you said it that way. You're the only person in the media <laughs> awesome. that said nice. it that way. I was like, awesome. no way. Good so for the, you. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. But so then uh, he gave me an interview and I ended up turning that into a piece on Talk Nerdy to Me, yeah. which was super fun. Oh, I, I love that. That's a great title. Yeah. yeah. So you, how long were you at the Huffington Post? I was only there for a year and a half, but I did, um, did a lot with them in that amount of time. I was there before they launched their own science page. Mm -hmm. So I was there kind of through that process of saying, listen, we need to have a safe place on the site for research, for evidence-based thinking. We need to have straight science because a lot of the science, quote unquote, was living in the green pages, in the tech pages, and in the health pages. And there, I, I feel personally like wasn't a very good division there between science that is published in, in peer reviewed journals and kind of pseudo y woo y things. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. so I, I was involved in building up that science page. And then I started doing the talk nerdy to me video series. I, I wrote a bunch of, uh, not really articles, but more blogs too. But I think by the end of it, I had like 190 videos. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, it's crazy. I'm curious what it was like to be the science correspondent for the Huffington Post, sure. which yeah. to me is like being the peace minister for the military. Yeah. I know. It's funny. I was actually invited <laughs> to write right. for the science section mm -hmm. of the Huffington Post. I turned them down because there was just too much side by side. We had a science. mix of that, yeah. Yeah, and I just couldn't like be putting my name next to Dana Ullman and Deepak Chopra and yeah. these guys. I said, "You got to clean up your act and come back and talk to me." And so, uh, what, how does it go? And there? so that's that's a really difficult thing when you're talking about a news organization that's so big. So, like, I remember talking to Al Alec Jaw about this when I was at Science Online a couple of years ago, which is a, a kind of a meeting of the minds of online science communicators. And he's the science correspondent for the Guardian, and I feel like they kind of have some of the same issues over at The Guardian. I think um, uh, people think of HuffPost maybe because we think of Jenny McCarthy and mm -hmm. we think of Deepak and those stick out in our minds. Yep. But really, I mean, it, when you're talking about a, a large newspaper, whether it's online or print, that has so many different sections and a newspaper that started out as a blog, you know, so it's an opinion paper first that then transitioned into mm -hmm. delivering news. And so anybody from inside understands that the left rail is blog and opinion and then the middle and the right rail are, are like vetted news articles. And so it, it, it is a difficult thing, right? Because also the people who run the health pages weren't even in the same building as me. They were yeah. in New York and I was in the Beverly Hills office. I was working side by side with weddings, divorce and post 50. 
which is like the 50 and over page. Yeah. So I wasn't even anywhere near the health. And and I wasn't the editor either. I think that would have been a much more difficult job. David Freeman was my editor and he did a really good job of, of, you know, having a critical eye of what happened on specifically our pages, which is all we had any control over. And also there's, I don't want to call it a turf war because it's all very friendly, but when you work for a large organization like that, you have carve outs of what coverage you can do. So for example, the green page existed before the science page. So I could never do climate coverage. Mm -hmm. I could never do any sort of environmental coverage and the health pages existed before. So I had to, it was really a stretch for me to do anything about cancer, for me to do anything. I had to really talk about it like, oh no, but I'm talking about a scientific kind of achievement Mm -hmm. involved in cancer biology and not so much cancer treatments because the health pages would say, well, that's our purview. So I I mean, it's tough. And I, I know that some scientists, some doctors wanted to kind of speak up and say, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to play ball and I'm going to write on these pages. Phil Plate, I interviewed him quite yeah. a few times. Uh, Shermer, I interviewed before. And also I think that I got, uh, I started to gain the trust specifically with Talk Nerdy as that brand with a lot of um, other scientists and communicators because they felt like, you know, I ultimately had control over what ended up going up under my banner and my name. And for me, more important than anything was to maintain that credibility in the scientific community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a great answer. It <laughs> was wow. a really long yeah. answer too. Sorry. No, no, it's, it's hard. You know, there's a lot of journalists out there like you that get it mm-hmm. and they're there. And there's a lot of journalists that are, you know, they're, they're actually working on stuff they shouldn't be working on. You sure. know, people that are on the science beat that aren't scientists or, or get science. Yeah. And it's frustrating for us because we're popular, you know, we try to popularize science. We're there. We're also, you know, huge into the skeptical community and critical thinking. And we have a very, you know, very good perspective on what's good and what's not good. Yeah. And I just was talking to another journalist um, yesterday and he's like, we're not all bad. I'm like, I know. <laughs> but a lot of it is bad. And yeah. we're, we're worried about it because that's what people are reading and that's what's getting into people's heads. And what's what's so sad is that what we're seeing is that we're seeing so so little money kind of going into journalism anymore. And it's so hard for these papers to stay afloat and these new, so, so now we've got for profit journalism, which is a huge problem in this country, especially when we're talking about on air kind of TV news, which is a whole different argument, but also, um, you're seeing that, you know, there is no science desk anymore at these papers. There is no environment desk. And you've got people who usually would have a very specific beat and have trained their whole lives covering that beat who are having to cover topics that maybe they're not really equipped yep. to cover. Pair that with this old school journalistic model of you've always got to give equal time to both sides, yeah. quote unquote. You can't see my air quotes, but I'm making them of an equation, um, or of a problem. And right there, you just have a recipe for t- false equivalencies left exactly. and right, which are oh, so God, dangerous. So right. Yeah. The equal footing thing is just yeah. it's total BS. And it's like, I feel like, okay, if you're a news organization and you feel like you want to have different opinions or different viewpoints, I should say, on your air, I will give, I will make a direct correlation between the amount of consensus and the amount of airtime I will give yes. them. So I will give a climate denier 5% of my airtime. So then as to make fun of them, once I get them off the air mm-hmm. or whatever Excellent. the case may be, if, if they're, if, or let's say 0.5%, I don't even know what the consensus is in this country. It's probably a little lower because we have climate scientists like that on the payroll of big oil. So yeah, it's like 97%. 97%. So, figure that comes so there you go. Yeah. So we'll give uh, a climate denying scientist 3% of our airtime. So yeah. as to show that 3% of these climate uh, scientists are paid by BP. Yeah, exactly. I like it. Treasonable. Yeah. What, What's your thoughts on the uh, the utility, the impact of new media versus traditional media in terms of getting the message out, promoting science, and just generally educating the public? I mean, I think new media is huge, and I think that I'm kind of the embodiment of new media. Like, I'm, you know, I'm a freelancer now, and I do a lot of on-air work, and I still feel like when it comes to all the different news organizations, I, I just did some really fun work with Al Jazeera America, who recently um, uh, acquired Current and and 
right. I, I worked on a fun innovation show there, which is very kind of science friendly. And I, I have done some really traditional media, but I think I'm still kind of scary to traditional media outlets. Whenever my agent sends me out and I'm talking to anybody at CNN, I'm like, oh, are we wasting our time here? You know, yeah. like I'm not CNN. Why is that? I don't have pretty lady reporter hair and I've got a lip ring and I'm kind of irreverent. And and I just think that it, we're still not quite in this place where... You're too hip is what I'm, you're saying. I'm a little too hip. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I, I'm a little scary, you know, but new media, it's like easy. Anything I do on YouTube, I've, I've done kind of like Will Wheaton's tabletop show and I've yeah. done a bunch of stuff with The Nerdist and and I did some stuff with Stan Lee, which is fun because then you get these crossover audiences yeah. yep. and, and you can speak to them in that way. But I do think that there's a fear and a risk of a journalism only going the way of kind of citizen journalism and new media. And I understand it. I, I look at kind of traditional um, reporters and editors and, and their concern is about the editorial process. It's about curation. It's about helping to separate, you know, the meat from the fat. And I think we're living in kind of fire hose land right mm-hmm. now where there's so much stuff available yep. to us. And it's, mm-hmm. it becomes more difficult for the casual observer, I think, to know the difference between science and pseudoscience or to know the difference between uh, uh, journalism and pseudo-journalism. It's delivered in the same way. Yeah. You know, and I was, I was again, I was having a great conversation with someone yesterday. And uh, we, were, we were talking about the idea that there isn't – the editorial process isn't in place anymore. Yeah. It's like anybody, a blog can go up. Anybody can start a blog. Yeah. And then uh, th- there's this idea, you know, Steve and I talk about this all the time where this equal footing idea or whatever, like, no, like you're wrong. Yep. You know, people don't, we don't say that anymore. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. And as an, as an observer, as a viewer, as a listener, as a watcher of, um, I think that it, the kind of onus starts to fall on, on y- your own shoulders to, you know, let's say for example, like I don't have a Google reader and I'm a reporter. Like, I mean, I'm not actively working as one yeah, right Google now. Google reader but, was shut down. Right. And yeah. Google reader was shut down yeah. anyway. So I was ahead of the curve on that. But I use, I use Twitter as my reader. Like it's very important to me. I am very specific about the people I follow and I, I kind of apologize in advance if, if we're friends and you follow me, but I'm not following you back because I follow people on Twitter to get my, my content. Right. Yeah. That's the reason I do it. And I keep it at 250. Mm-hmm. When there's somebody new I feel like I need to follow, I'll usually ax another person. And it's, it's really because I can't handle any more than 250 people that I'm following, but that becomes my reader. And it's, it's a curated list by me of people who I trust, people who have kind of shown me throughout the years that they are delivering quality vetted content. Exactly. That's what we, we've all gone and through that tough, process. And it's tough, you know, you, yeah. and, and I think a lot of casual kind of consumers of the news or of information don't have time. Yeah. And I also have a background in, in science. I understand the scientific method and I've, I've been a journalist now for, for coming up on two years. So I have some training in that, but I can't imagine how yeah. difficult it would be to, to know the difference between the, you know, the bullshit out there and the, and the, and the yeah. legitimate news. Yeah. yeah. It's scary. It's a, you know, it's a wild west. It, it really we, is. We've said yeah. many times. Open range. Yeah. You know, and what do you do? Like, you know, do you hand out your list of 250 and say, Hey guys, you want legitimate sources? You know, would that even help? Yeah. I mean, I think you try, you, you follow Friday on people, you, you talk, you know, about people and you collaborate with people in the media. And I think what happens is that you have these little like niche kind of grassroots groups of people that are interested in consuming very specific content. But we also live in a world now where you can get the news that's fit for you. Yeah. Like you don't have to ever hear anything outside of your yeah, own that challenges you. Yeah. Yeah. That is scary. Yeah, you can completely, yeah. and you'll feel, you'll have this false sense of security that you are an informed citizen yep. Yep. and you are making, you know, good decisions when you when you show up for the polls. And really, it's just because you're living in an echo chamber. Lots of confirmation bias slips a, in A lot, way. a whole lot. Yep. 
And it goes beyond politics. I mean, we, the echo chamber effect we encounter everywhere now on the internet. We talk about, like, go to anti-vaccination sites and the comments is a manufactured echo chamber. I mean, yeah. they specifically, and, and they, they rationalize it by saying, well, we need a safe place to talk yeah. to other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, and if you disagree with them, you're a troll. Yeah. Like, well, there right. are real trolls on the internet, yeah. but not everybody who disagrees with you is a troll, but you can see how very quickly and instantly you can create an echo chamber Completely. Online. And yeah. it's so funny because you, then, then let's say that we sit here kind of at this skeptic convention and we try to empathize, let's say, with individuals who are hanging out in an anti-vax chat room. And this is a mom who happened to have her children vaccinated, who also happened to have an autistic child and that autism, the signs of autism happen to show up around the same time of vaccination, mm-hmm. which is a very common story that yep. we hear. Obviously, there's no link, but in her mind, in her heart, that anecdote is really strong because it's her life. It's her story. So she's in this anti-vax chat room. She's not some nefarious perpetrator. You know, sure. she's not writing uh, uh, these brochures or whatever. And and they're saying, you know, this is a safe place. This is where like-minded, because we're the informed ones. You know, cut to all of us sitting around a table at a skeptic convention saying, you know, we're all together because we're the informed ones. And it's really difficult, I think, for people to know the difference between, I mean, how is what we're doing any different from what they're doing? And for us, we say, well, it's based on available evidence. Yeah. But when you're, when you grew up in a broken school system and when you are struggling and working three jobs to raise, you know, your kids as a single mom, like, you don't have time to be informed the way that we were lucky enough. It's a luxury. Scientific thought, it's a luxury. I mean, I personally think it's a necessity as well. And that's why I'm like really crusading, I think, for, um, for helping to improve science literacy in this country specifically. But it's, we're, we're the lucky ones because Mm -hmm. we get to think that way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Although let me, I do want to actually answer your question. What's Mm -hmm. different about us? I do get concerned. And that we get into an echo chamber yeah. ourselves. But I do think that there's a couple of important differences. You can let me know what you think about this. One is that we focus on process and not, not conclusion. Sure. Whereas like the anti-vax, it's about the conclusion. It's about yeah. being anti-vax. And the second is we seek out the other side. I want to hear the other side. I want to, I don't accept anything until I've fully explored every point of view, mm-hmm. which again is the exact opposite. So I mean, do, do, do you? I agree with that. I, I I think that that's that's a legitimate difference, and I think that procedurally you're completely right. But I think that there's also this point of kind of I don't want to say of no return because the whole point of the scientific method is that there's you can always return. But there is kind of this point, and I talked about this earlier. I can't remember to whom, but where where it's an issue of burden of proof, right? So so when you I talked about the difference between a hypothesis and the theory, and hopefully your your viewers know the difference. But but the long and short of it is, you know, you're observing your environment, you're interacting with it a question comes to mind, you ask yourself that question, you come up with a way to test that, and and then you have some new observations. Um, you know, you can either refute or, or um, support your hypothesis. More people start doing that in multiple fields and asking questions that are closely related, and eventually you start to get this body of knowledge, right? And that's, that's a theory, is when a body of knowledge kind of fills up. And once you have a pretty well-established theory, and we're talking thousands of peer-reviewed papers, all of a sudden, it's not my job to try to quote-unquote prove to you anymore why evolution is fact. Yeah. If you're an anti-evolutionist, you need to give me evidence as mm-hmm. to why you think that my theory is flawed. The burden of proof has shifted yeah. a little bit. And I think when it comes to, even in the skeptic community, we know that the climate is getting hotter and we know that the reason for that is largely because of human activity. We know that there is no legitimate link between vaccines and autism. But because of that, we kind of stop listening to the other side because we're like, you've had your chance to show us. And I think it's, you almost start to say like, 
any new piece of quote unquote evidence is probably bullshit. The nice thing is there are crusaders in this community mm -hmm. who really do comb over all of that evidence. Yeah, sure. They sure. look at all of it. They categorize it. They tell you why they see flaws in the study designs or whatever, which is great. Yeah. But like, I don't have time to do that <laughs> yeah, at this absolutely. point. I'm like, you yeah. got to show me why. Yeah. I don't have time to figure it out for myself. But I think you more described what scientists do, not what skeptics do. Sure. I think scientists get that once you're beyond a certain threshold, everything else is bullshit and yeah. don't waste my time with it. Yeah. Whereas, like, we're, mm. the skeptics are still like, okay, them side research. Okay, let's dig deep now. I know ESP yeah. is bullshit. We've known for a hundred years, but let's dig deep on this mm -hmm. new latest, you know, version of the claim <laughs> yeah. because that's what we do. That's yeah. our job. And that's and fair. Then, and I'm glad you do it. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And I consider myself a skeptic as well, but I, maybe I'm like a lazier skeptic because that sounds exhausting <laughs> well, because, to me. Well, we all, we divide and conquer. Sure, we have exactly. Our specialties, yeah. you know? We do. And because the mother of three, as you described earlier, you know, mm -hmm. doesn't have the time to do that, we are sort of helping them do that. We're helping them, yeah. um, you yeah. know, bring that information forward for them. Well, Kara, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you uh, sitting down with us and spending some time. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Carol. Thank you. Thank you. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. We have a theme this week and four items theme is acids and bases. <laughs> is that like Dungeons and Dragons? No, not quite. Not even close. Not quite. Here we go. Item number one. Acid tastes sour while bases taste bitter. Item number two. The pH of spinal fluid averages from 4.5 to 5.5, mainly from the presence of carbonic acid. Item number three. In a study of 20 soft drinks, RC Cola was found to be the most acidic at a pH of 2.4. And item number four, the world's strongest acid, carborane, which is a million times more potent than sulfuric acid, is also one of the least corrosive. Evan, go first. Uh, Bob, <laughs> how'd you do on this? How are you going to do on this one, Bob? You're all, you're all studied up, all that reading you did this week? Good. Okay. <laughs> First ones, acids taste sour while bases taste bitter. I started to learn about acids and bases quite early in my school history. Uh, fourth grade or something, we were doing experiments with acids and bases. I seem to rem remember it could be a false memory. Wouldn't be surprised, but I think that this one at the time had truth to it, but I perhaps it's a misnomer that this is kind of what we all remember from our, you know, elementary levels of science class, but maybe that turns out to be just not right. Moving on, pH of spinal fluid averages 4.5 to 5.5, but mainly from the presence of carbonic acid. You know, I, I don't really know what to say about that. I, in a study of 20 soft drinks, moving on, RC Cola, which was my father's favorite drink back in the 70s, was found to be the most acidic at a pH level of 2.4. Sure. The last one, the world's strongest acid. Whoa. Carborane, a million times more potent than sulfuric acid. Sulfuric acid <laughs> does a lot of damage, doesn't it? But it's the least, one of the least corrosive. I don't understand this. How could something be a million times more potent than something that is, you know, will eat through your skin 
but it's the least corrosive. So it must only work, it must only have a reaction to certain other molecules. Uh, maybe it's corrosive to metals and stuff, but put it on skin or organic material and it just doesn't have the same effect. I'm leaning towards that one being right. Therefore, I will say that my memory from childhood is failing me. Acids taste sour while bases taste bitter. Fiction. Okay, Jay. Um, okay, the first one, I, d- I just have to go with my gut. I think that's 100% correct. And I'm remembering a test I took in high school where I put a piece of paper in my mouth. We went through this in school. I'm sure we all yeah, did at some point. Yeah, so I think that one is science. So the second one about the pH of spinal fluid. Okay, first off, I've never thought about that before. The pH of spinal fluid. What? Where is it on that spectrum? Very interesting. And and then what purpose would would it serve in whatever direction it is, whatever the truth happens to be? I'm going to think that this one is science as well because of where Steve put it on the spectrum. So now we're on to the third one, the one about the 20 soft drinks and RC Cola was found to be the most acidic. Eh, okay, that's interesting um, because I wouldn't think that any cola is is is, is as, as acidic um, as that, as 2.4, with that pH. That's very interesting. And then would that have anything to do with the flavor? I don't know. I don't know. But one of them has to be the most acidic. So let me put that one on the back burner real quick. Now, this one, the world's strongest acid, carburane, um, I've heard of it before. Uh, the fact that it's supposed to be a million times more potent than potent in sulfuric acid. It absolutely seems to me that if that were true, I would have heard of it. Why do I know all about sulfuric acid and I don't know that much about carburane? I'm going to say that this last one is the fake. Carburane is not a million more times, uh, more, it's not a million times as potent as sulfuric acid. Okay, Bob. Um, for some reason, the, uh, the sour acids and especially the bitter bases sounds right to me. So I'm going to go with that one. Spinal fluid, 4, 5 and f- to 5.5. So what, 7 is completely neutral, so this is ver- just slightly acidic. Sure. 20 soft drinks. 2.4, um, yeah, that, that does seem more acidic than I would think any soda would be. And then that kind of leads into the fourth one here, uh, carb- uh, carburane. Never heard of it. When I first saw a million times more potent, I immediately said, that's fiction. That's bullshit. A million times more than sulfuric? No way. But then you throw in this least corrosive crap at the end. It's like, well, all right. Well, so I'm sure there's subtleties to acids that are totally escaping me in terms of uh, potency and, and corrosiveness. Uh, that's totally possible. Or though it might be total baloney and makes no sense at all as far as I know. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gamble that you're just trying to throw us with this million times thing. Hoping that we'll bite, we'll grab that bait. I'm gonna go with the 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 cola. Two point four just seems a little bit too acidic. Although, wait, is it is the scale logarithmic? I don't know. Oh, I'm gonna I'll go with the RC cola. What the hell? Okay, so we got Evan with the taste and Jay and Bob with the cola. No, Jay, no, no, no. Jay's carburetor. Oh, Jay's yeah. carburetor and Bob's cola. Oh, you guys are pretty all over the place. And we're all over the place. We're all, <laughs> we're over, the all place. over the place. So oh. that means that you um, all agree yes. that the pH of spinal fluid averages from 4.5 to 5.5, mainly from the presence of carbonic acid. You all think that one is science. And Watch. that one That's- is <laughs> – the fiction. Oh, no is, way. That's Murphy's <laughs> yeah. Law. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, which one is the fiction? The spinal the fluid one. one. Oh, nice. Oh, damn. You bastard. Wow. I got that spinal tap. Damn it, I could have known that. 
So what's yeah. the truth on that, Steve? Spinal fluid is the same pH as the blood, around 7.4. Uh, of course. Yeah, your, bra- wow. your brain's not floating in battery acid. Wait, battery acid is 4.5 to 5.5? No, it's lower. But whatever, your brain's not floating in acid. It's it's the same pH as your But how your cool blood. would we be if our brain did float in acid, though? Come yeah. on. Yeah. That, right? Well. Would we be super intelligent? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Ask Timothy Leary. I don't yeah. know. We're hallucinating, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah right. You're, this is your brain on acid. So, wow. Yeah, I just you, you, wow. Right, so you let's nailed go back us. To number one. Acids taste sour while bases taste bitter. That is absolutely true. Um, that's why citrus fruit is sour because Acid. of uh, acids. Ascorbic Ascorbic. And citric acids. That's right. But yeah, I remember that from like seventh grade chemistry tasting right? See? acids. Yeah, and they were sour. Um, <sighs> while so bases I, so my, have a bitter taste. Yeah. I, I should trust my memory? Is that yeah. what I should take away from yeah. this? Implicitly. Okay. Never question your memory. <laughs> Not fair, Steve. <laughs> Not fair. Let's go on what number three. Not What's not fair? These are science questions. You <laughs> should know that. <laughs> Spinal fluid, 4.5. What are you What are you crazy? Get out of here. Come on. Come on. In a study Jeez. of 20 soft drinks, RC Cola was found to be the most acidic at a pH of 2.4. That is science as well. Ah. Yeah, that's a little surprising that it's that low. I kind of remember, though, that, that sodas are, are actually that low. And that's because of the presence of citric acid and phosphoric acid. And the, the colas generally were the most acidic. The least acidic... Of the uh, twenty soft drinks that were tested was guess what? Twenty oh, least water Mountain Dew. Well, that's soft drink. Soft, soft drink. drink. Uh, grape mm. soda. R- root beer. Oh, I was gonna say ginger ale. Yeah, root beer was the least. So uh, battery acid, by the way, has a pH of one. So does your Ouch. stomach. Your stomach's pH ranges from about one, one and a half up that's to amazing. about two and a half That's to amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, That's you have good. hydrochloric acid in your gastric juices. So, you know, drinking something with a pH of 2.4 is not a big deal. You know, it's your stomach is more acidic, generally speaking, than that. Um, there was a study where they, they uh, suspended teeth in various soft drinks for 48 hours. Yeah, I remember and, that. Yeah, and report that they lost 5% of their mass. But of course, that's like, yeah, who walks around with soda in their mouth for 48 hours straight? <laughs> it's just, it's just, it doesn't really apply to, you know, real life. Which means number four, the world's strongest acid carburetor, which is a million times more potent than sulfuric acid, is also one of the least corrosive, is very interesting science. So and it's, it's, it's very perplexing it. that it is so, so acidic and yet is not that uh, not that corrosive. That's because it's very stable, apparently. You know, you guys know the definition of an acid and a base, by the way? Yes, I do. Mm. Hit me. Tell me. Acids are acidic. <laughs> so are acids are are substances. Don't they don't they form hydrogen gas? Well, I mean they, they donate a hydrogen ion, whereas bases accept a hydrogen ion. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Basic uh, chemistry. Yeah. So you know, this is a substance that can obviously donate a lot of hydrogen ions, but but it does it's it's not very corrosive because once it goes through that reaction, the resulting the resulting chemical is very stable. So like it, you won't eat through you can store it in a glass jar, it won't eat through through glass. Before this, the next most the previous record holder was fluorosulfuric acid, which was so corrosive that it would eat right through glass. Glass. So you couldn't, yeah, you couldn't even store it in a glass beaker. But this acid, you can, even though it's even more potent as an acid. Yeah, so uh, interesting. I didn't wasn't sure how this one was going to go. How much uh, basic uh, chemistry you guys remembered from from grade school? Well, Steve, good job. All right. Well, Jay, hit me with a quote this week. 
This quote was sent in by Carl Bunker. <laughs> Carl is from Archie's and, cousin. Eh. Andover, North Andover, Massachusetts. And the quote is, a faith which cannot survive collision with the truth is not worth many regrets. Ah. Arthur C. Clarke! Ah, uh, Arthur. Very nice. All right, guys. Uh, so before we close out the show, we want to remind our listeners that we have uh, recently updated the SGU website. Please pay it a visit, theskepticsguide.org. Uh, and we have a new membership scheme that Jay and I came up with. Um, there's a premium membership at $8 a month or higher where you get access to premium content, extra content that we generate every week just as a thank you for our supporting members. This week, the premium content is going to be a discussion of Ray Comfort's new video, Evolution versus God. Uh, we'll be talking about that. And we're also go, there's already, I think, uh, there's lots of premium content there. We're going to be adding new premium content every week. In addition, uh, we are currently working on editing some of the B-roll that we shot for Octa Skeptical Caveman, and some of that may find its way into the premium content. And further, you get access to ad-free versions of the Skeptics Guide. So if you don't want to hear our, our brief commercial breaks that we've been taking on the show, just become a supporting member and you'll get to listen to ad-free versions of the show. Also, we've made a pledge that if 4% of our listeners become supporting members of the SGU, of the a, at an average of the uh, damn dirty ape level or higher, then uh, we will completely eliminate ads from our show. So we put it into your hands, listeners. Yep. And also take a moment to visit our store. We have some new items in there, a lot of cool T-shirts and quite a few other things, and we'll be adding more stuff to that soon. Yep. Give it a look. And thanks for supporting the SGU, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks for talking, Steve. Thank you, yeah. Jay. And thank you guys for joining me again this week. Thank, thank you, Bob. Thank you, Steve. Well done. <laughs> and until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And don't forget that this episode was brought to you by Hulu Plus. To sign up for your free trial of Hulu Plus and start watching your favorite shows right now, and for an extended free trial, go to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU, or just go to our homepage and there will be a link right there for you. 